Um, Christy and I have been here for about a year, I guess, and we joined just several months ago, but we're glad to be part of this church family. And I'm also very appreciative that I'm able to have the opportunity to teach, and so I'm excited about that. I'm sorry I do not have any handouts, and I know that Andrew's probably going to have me excommunicated because of that, but uh, I'm just not really a handout guy, so you're just, we were talking a while ago, you're just going to have to pay attention, okay? <laughs> so we are in Acts chapter 15 today, Acts chapter 15. And before we start reading, what I'd like to do is um, back up to chapter, four, uh, chapter 14, verses 24 through 28. Christy, I am going to need those readers. Can you bring them up to me, please? When they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Persia, y'all have to forgive me, it's hard to see this. They went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended by the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. That's much better. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together, and they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So real quick, let's just kind of look at what he's, what he's saying here, what Luke is giving us here. It said in verse 27, And when they gathered, arrived and gathered the church together, they all declared what God had done with them. Now, what's important there in this statement is that they are giving credit to who? To God, Right? That all that God had done with them. And how, listen to this, how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they're crediting God for all the things that he's done. But what are they also crediting God for? He is the source of their faith. Do y'all see that? Where he says that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And we can't ever forget that. That God is a source of all good things. He is a source of our faith. He is, he is, we are saved by grace through faith, which is all a gift from God. Every bit of it is. And that is absolutely critical to understand as we get into chapter 15. So let's go ahead and start reading. I'm not going to read through the whole thing. We're just going to take it apart piece by piece. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of, some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversions of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Okay, y'all see a problem in this? Of course, if we start in verse 1, it says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, this church in Antioch, is, um, it was emerging as one of the second most significant churches in the New Testament. Uh, one New Testament scholar said this. He said, 
The Christian community in Antioch quickly became a metropolitan church, rivaling in size the church in Jerusalem. If the church in Jerusalem was a mother church of Christians in general, the church in Antioch was a mother church of Gentile Christians in particular. So it's not surprising that a church is doing, that is doing this well that it's going to come under attack of some kind. Isn't that right? We see Satan trying to attack all churches where God is truly working in the church. And so this is what's taking place here. Now, if we see that these men come up from Judea all the way up to Antioch, that's about a 300-mile trek. And so they, this is something that they were really serious about. So they go all the way up to Antioch. These, these men, we call them Judaizers, okay? And what they do is they say that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. The question here in, uh, that we're talking about is salvation, salvation. And so they say you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. They feel like that in order to be saved, you must first become a Jew. And then Judaism is the doorway to salvation. Well, the problem with that is that we see earlier in the book of Acts that we see many Gentiles coming to Christ, receiving the Holy Spirit apart from circumcision. So we know that this is not true. But these men, you have to, you have to think about where these men are coming from. From birth, they were taught that you're circumcised on the eighth day and you follow the law of Moses. It was just something that was ingrained into them, that it was their schooling, it was everything that they lived revolved around these things. And so all of a sudden, this salvation that is available to Gentiles, no less, who they consider to be unclean, and they don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to follow the law of Moses. This is so foreign to them. It's so offensive to them that they're willing to travel 300 miles to this church that they've heard about that is really emerging. And they go all the way up there just to try to get them to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. So they're serious about this. And then... Paul later has to deal with the same issue in, in the church in Galatia. And, you know, when, when Paul writes a letter to these churches, he always starts out with a nice introduction, you know, pleasing, I'm so thankful for you, thankful for your faith, you know, and things like this. This, this. this is what he does in most of his epistles. But in the book of Galatians, he doesn't start out like that. He does do a regular greeting, but then... In verse 6 in chapter 1 of Galatians, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So can you imagine being in a church and you get a letter from Paul and, and you're thinking, oh man, he's going he's gonna to give us some good instructions. He's going to encourage us and things like this. But then he comes out with this and he says, if anyone is teaching that you must be circumcised, because that's the issue going on here in the church in Galatia. He says, if anyone is teaching that you must be circumcised in order to be saved, let him be accursed. The word there in Greek is anathema. And it literally means to be given up to destruction. 
So Paul's not happy about this, isn't that right? I mean, we don't see Paul do this very often, but I mean, he is really getting into it with these people. And so because it's a big deal, this is a pivotal moment in all of Christianity, especially for the Gentiles. This is probably, this is actually the pivotal chapter in the book of Acts because it's how the Gentiles come to Christ. So Paul is serious about this. And when God, an interesting story from the Old Testament, when God ratified his um, covenant with Abraham, he he told Abraham to get these uh, animals, certain kinds of animals, split them in half and separate them, okay? Now, Abraham knew exactly what God was doing because this was a common practice of the people during this time whenever they entered into a covenant with one another. What they would do is they would take these animals, they would separate them, they would cut them apart, separate them, and both parties of the contract would walk through the divided animals. And what they are saying is that if either one of us breaks the terms of this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to us. So they're calling down a curse upon themselves if one of them were going to break this covenant. Well, when God did this, Abraham did not go through the pieces. Only God did. And why do you think that is? Anybody? Because man's going to break the covenant. There's no way that man can follow the law to the T. So what happens if God goes through on his own? What happens? He is essentially calling down a curse upon himself because he knows that Abraham, or that Abraham is going to break the covenant. So the thing is, is that when this took place, this actually was fulfilled when Christ was on the cross because he, what, he took on the curse for, on our behalf. And so that, that came to fruition on the cross. And the thing is about this curse is if we try to put ourselves under the law, we are putting ourselves under the curse. So we see in what, ha- what happens whenever we add works to salvation is it, like I said a while ago, it puts us on, under a curse. Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. So that's why when God God went through the pieces alone, he took the curse on himself that would ultimately be fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ. But it also, when we add works to salvation, it nullifies grace. Galatians 5, 3, and 4. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that we lose our salvation because the issue he's dealing with here is salvation. How do we come to Christ? It's not through works. It's not through circumcision. It's merely because God saved us. It's God's work. It has nothing to do with anything that we do. So, he's dealing with salvation. That's the issue here. It's not those who are, being sa- who are saved that he's talking about. It's about those who are coming to salvation. If they try to come to salvation by works, then they, have, they remain under the curse of the law. So, to have a true understanding of why this such, is such a big issue, we need to look at Hebrews chapter 10. Now, I want to clarify something real quick. <clears throat> the law we're speaking of 
is ceremonial law, okay? We have moral law, we have ceremonial law. We also, there's also civil law and there's laws of uh, dietary laws. But what he's dealing with here is circumcision and following the law of Moses, he's referring to ceremonial law. See, that was all fulfilled in Christ. He fulfilled the law, the ceremonial law. Now what happens to the moral law? Is that done away with too? No, absolutely not. We are still not, we're not under the law per se, but the moral law has been written on our hearts. That's what God has given us. And that's how we should, we should live our lives if we want to be pleasing to the Lord. So I probably got ahead of myself a little bit. But. Hebrews chapter 10. This is, this is critical for us to understand why this is such, such a big deal. Hebrews chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form for these realities, <coughs> of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have ceased, would they have not ceased to be offered. Since the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the writer of Hebrews is telling us that the law would never justify us, but it was a shadow that was pointing us to Christ, and he is the reality. But then, if you go down a little further to verse 11, and 11 through 13, it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You think about what he's saying here. He says that the priests stand daily performing their duties. What does that mean if they're standing daily performing their duties? They're still working. It's never ending. Why is it never ending? Because the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. Through God's grace, he allowed it to cover sin for a time, but they had to continue to come back time after time after time offering these sacrifices. But when Jesus offered himself up as a sacrifice, one sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. What does that tell us? The work's finished. The ceremonial law has been fulfilled. It's done. He even said it on the cross. It is finished. And that's something that we should rejoice about. Because my salvation has nothing to do with my good works. Romans chapter 3 says that there is no one righteous, not even one. No one seeks God. So we should be so thankful for the work that Christ did on earth as well as on the cross. Because he now has fulfilled the law on our behalf. And for these men to come and tell these, these Christians that you must be circumcised and follow the law of Moses in order to be saved, they are walking away from grace. They are saying that Christ, Christ's sacrifice was not sufficient. And it needs to be added to. And the problem is that we sometimes do the same thing, don't we? You must be baptized in order to be saved. Do we do that sometimes? I mean, I don't, I don't know if we do, but I mean, I'm sure that there's a lot of churches that say that. A lot of Christians that believe that. They're adding baptism to salvation as a means of salvation. 
Baptism is not a means to salvation. It's an act of obedience after salvation. It tells the world what Christ has done in our lives through the death, burial, and resurrection. That's what baptism is. It's a symbol. But we add, we add works all the time. We say in order to be saved, you have to do this. You have to stop doing this. You have to do this. You, you know, we can't even repent apart from salvation. When it says to be, repent and be saved, repent and be baptized, repentance comes from God's work in our life. That's the only way that we are capable of any kind of repentance. It's through God's work and not ours. So who gets the credit? God gets credit for all things. And Paul says, Paul says that in Ephesians. He says, so that no one can boast, not one of us. So anytime you add works to salvation, you are nullifying what Christ has done. You're nullifying grace. See, I do that and I lose my place. So I, I get to preaching. Sorry about that, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, this is verse 2. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So it says that he had no small debate. So if it wasn't a small one, what was it? It was a big one, right? As a matter of fact, this word debate is used in Acts chapter 19, and um, it's referred to as a riot. So, I mean, this was no small debate. They were going at each other. Because you know how serious Paul is about, about this issue, about adding works to salvation. So, they traveled back to Jerusalem to resolve this issue because, again, it is a pivotal issue in the church. And then, look in verse, let's read back uh, verses 2 through 5 real quick. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversions of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Okay, these Pharisees, they, it says that they are believers, yet they're preaching circumcision and following the law of Moses. I have no doubt that it may be that they are true believers, like the Bible says, that they have the Holy Spirit, but like a lot of believers, they hold on to traditions, they hold on to False teachings and things such as this doesn't mean that they're not saved. It just, it just means that they are uninformed or ignorant. And that's probably the case with these men. They are men of the Pharisees. Now, the, the, in, the, in verse 1, when it said that the men, some men came up from Judea, it didn't say if they were believers. And we don't know if they were a different sect or whatever the case may be, but it says here that these Pharisees were believers. And they're telling them that they, it is necessary to circumcise them and for them to follow the law of Moses. So, if we think about this, for, and again, they're referring to the ceremonial law, okay? But as we were talking about a while ago, what about the moral law? What about the moral law? What do we do with this? 
Well, we have to make a distinction, of course, between ceremonial and moral law. Uh, the ceremonial law was how we approached God. That's what the ceremonial law was. Well, Christ fulfilled that. So how do we approach God now? We go straight to him through Christ. There is no ceremony any longer because Christ fulfilled that. <clears throat> so we have to determine, okay, well, how does the moral law apply to Christians? Um, in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40, a man asked Jesus, he says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends the law and the prophets. So what is Jesus saying here? Did he say, well, the law doesn't apply anymore? So, you know, did he say that? Even Jesus even said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So what's he saying here by these two statements of the greatest commandment? He's saying that all of the law falls under these two things. That we first love God with all of our heart, and we love one another. He said, if you do these things, then that covers the law. And, but is he talking about the ceremonial law? No, he's going to take care of that. He's talking about the moral law, which still applies. In Galatians 5, 6, it says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only, listen to this, only faith working through love. Faith working through love. What are these works he's referring to? Good works, right? Well, they have to be in line with the moral law. James said, faith without works is, faith without works is dead. Y'all speak out, yell. Faith without works is dead. So we know that Works don't take us to faith. Works are a result of faith. And Christ, uh, God is the source of our faith, which gives us power to be able to walk according to the way He wants us to. Now, are we going to fall? Are we going to sin? Absolutely. But God has imprinted His law on our heart. Paul said this about the law, Romans 7, 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous. And good. So we've got to remember what the purpose of the law is. First, it reveals God's character and His standard. When we break the law, we fall short of His standard. And the thing about the law, whenever we see how it is impossible for us to follow all of the aspects of the law, it shows us how far we are from a holy God. And we are in desperate need of a Savior. So it reveals God's character and His standard. And the second thing it does is it reveals our sin. Romans 3.20 says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So Paul wouldn't even know what sin was except for the law. Romans 7.7, 7, What shall we say then, if, if, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So again, are we under the law? 
I mean, that's, that's the question. Are we under the law in order to gain salvation? No. But does the moral law apply to us today? Absolutely, it does. Because Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial law. So let's go ahead and keep moving. Let's look in verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, there's that word again, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by the mouth of the Gentiles, that by my, my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Who cleansed their heart? God did. And how did he do it? Through faith. Okay, notice that God gets, gets credit here for even, even for their faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, or Lord Jesus, just as they will. So here, Peter stands up and he's given testimony about what God has done among the Gentiles. He has saved them. He has given them faith. They have received the Holy Spirit. And circumcision, or works of the law, had nothing to do with it. There's evidence there that these men were saved, that these people were saved. And I love what he says in verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And that's interesting that he didn't say that they will be saved just like we will. But he said we will be saved just like they will. Why would he say something like that? Because they were saved apart from circumcision and the works of the law. And we are saved in the same manner apart from circumcision and following the law. So then we look in verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul and they related what signs and wonders God had done through, uh, through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Actually, let's stop there. Notice in verse 12, it says, all the assembly fell silent. Okay, before this, they were going at each other. I mean, they were debating, they were arguing over this whole subject. They were going at one another. And then all of a sudden they stop. And although Peter was probably a very uh, well-spoken man, he probably can, you know, had a lot of convincing arguments and things such as this, but why does, any, why does anyone change? It's only through the work of the Holy Spirit. I believe what happened here, when the, when the crowd fell silent, it means that they're starting to see the truth. And the only way we can see truth is through the work of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that's evident here whenever everybody got, got quiet. And then Paul and Barnabas, they got up to speak. And then, after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this I will return. 
and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from all of all old. So when James gets up to speak, now James is, is a leader in the church in Jerusalem. He's one of the leaders in this church. And when he stands up, and, and also we're going to see here in, in later verses that James is the one that makes the decision. But this, is, this James is not the Apostle James because we know that he was killed in earlier chapters. This is the brother of Jesus. He's also the author of the book of James. So he's quoting here from Amos 9, verse 11 and 12. And he's talking about how that God is going to restore um, and he's going to uh, bring the message and the gospel to the Gentiles. And we've seen this all in the, in the Old Testament, that the Gentiles would one day be saved. And we see it particularly when God calls Abraham, or Abram at the time. What did he tell him? He said, I'm going to make your name great, and, and you are going to be a what? A blessing to who? To all the nations. Does that include us? It includes the Gentiles. It includes the Jews. He said, you will be a blessing to all the nations. And the, the funny thing is, is that the gospel is in that passage right there. Because the blessing that will come to all the nations would be Christ. Verse 19. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every, every Sabbath in the synagogues. Okay, it's, it's funny, we may question, okay, if this whole debate is about circumcision and following the law, then why would they say, let's just tell them to do these parts of the law? If you think about it. Well, what's he referring to? Is it ceremonial law that he's talking about? No, he's talking about the moral law. And what are these things that he's referring to? Well, abstain from things polluted by idol and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. You think about the culture that these Gentiles are living in, okay? What were they doing? They were worshiping idols, this culture. They're worshiping idols. They're making sacrifices. They're, some of them drinking blood. Not only that, they had temple prostitutes. And this was all part of what their culture was. So James is telling them, if you are going to be set apart, you know, as part of the church, then you need to abstain from these things that are evil. I mean, we don't do away with the moral law, do we? And not only that, but they are in, they have some Jews in their churches, and so if, if faith, faith is acting out through love, then why would we, would we want people to continue to do things that would be offensive to their Jewish brothers? So James is telling them, you need to abstain from these things 
because they're offensive, both to the Jews and also we know that even the sexual immorality, idol worship, doing these things, they're offensive to God. And, but what, what about the, the strangled? Uh, they can't eat anything that had been strangled, right? Well, in the Old Testament law, when they were going to eat something, they had to drain all the blood out of it, every bit of it. And if you strangle an animal and it dies without losing its blood, then you're eating the blood. Okay, so let's, let's continue. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard from some persons who have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now, notice when they go... Um, and they, they're taking this letter to these people. He says that the, some men have come to you and troubled you, but they didn't come from us. Okay, they, We didn't send them, even though they came from that region. And so he says, it, is good, it seemed good to us, this is verse 25, it seems good to us having um, come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Notice that. The same people that were arguing and fighting over this issue, he said, we, it has seemed good to us, those of us who are in one accord. We are all in one accord. And whose work was that? The Holy Spirit. And he even says it here in a further, further verse, down in verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. There's an important lesson, and we've already talked about this, but it's very vital that we understand that all good works comes as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. All of it. I always say that answered prayer is initiated by God. Because God's plan has already been written out. And so if we pray a prayer that God answers, God is the one who prompted us to pray it. All good things come from God through the Holy Spirit. He is the source of all good things, faith, works, whatever the case may be, God is the source. And we have to give Him credit. And any time we take credit for any work that we do, we are nullifying that. We are walking away from it. We are denying the work that God has done in my life. There's no way that me, myself, Ted Sally, could have faith in order to believe in a risen Savior. That would be a righteous act that I would commit on my own merit but there's no way I can. 
Because again, Romans chapter 3, no one is righteous, not even one. But it's only through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that God changes us. He gives us faith. He saves us. And so they bring this letter to them. The Holy Spirit has given them one accord. And he tells them the things that we required, that we talked about, that you need to stay away from sacrifices, um, what has been sacrificed to idol, from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Now, again, a lot of these are new believers. I'm sure there's a lot of other things that they need to learn about, you know, how to live as a Christian, but these are things that are absolutely vital to this culture. So that's why they remind them of those things. So let's, let's read on. So when they, this is verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation to get together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were with them, prophets encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in, in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the Lord, word of the Lord with many others also. So it says here that when they brought the letter to these Gentiles and they read this to them, you can imagine that they were joyous because, I mean, these guys are trying to uh, impose something unfamiliar to them, also something that is contrary to the gospel. So you can imagine the joy whenever they received the news that they were all in one accord, that salvation is by grace through faith alone. And so, look in verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take them with him since uh, the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers of the, to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul seems like a guy that doesn't really put up with a lot of nonsense, doesn't he? <laughs> he's, I mean, this, this issue that he had with Mark, you know, he's, he said, no, I'm not going with him. I, you know, I'll, I'll take Silas with me. But this, show, this just kind of goes to show who Paul was. He was the kind of guy, he just doesn't put up with a lot of nonsense. And if something's wrong, you know Paul's going to confront you about it. He, you know he's going to say something about it, especially when it comes to the gospel. Because Paul is serious about it. And the thing is, we should be too. We do it in love. But when we see false teachings, you know, we're not, we're not called to be timid Christians. That's not what we're called to be. We're called to speak truth in love. And the truth, a lot of times, is very offensive. But we can't, we can't worry about that. We speak the truth. When we hear or see false teaching, we need to confront them in love. And I, I've done it on several occasions, and Christy would say it was not very lovely to see. <laughs> but it's something that must be done. But we do it in a loving way. Now, it said that they had a sharp dispute, you know, so... 
I mean, but I'm sure that they still loved one another. But the thing is, is that we must speak out against false teaching, especially when it comes to the gospel. And that's what Paul is doing here. It's what James did. It's what Peter did. You think about where Peter came from. Peter was a Jew that did not associate with Gentiles until the vision. Y'all remember the vision? The sheet came down. Unclean animals were on there. And the voice said, Peter, get up and eat. Kill and eat. And he said, Lord, I have never, I have never touched anything that is unclean. And God said, do not declare anything that I have made clean to be unclean. And by doing so, what he did is, number one, he, he rendered those foods clean to eat, but also the, the bigger picture was that he said that the Gentiles are clean, and you are to go to them. And he sends him to Cornelius, and he shares the gospel with him, and his whole household was saved and baptized. And this was Peter's first experience with the gospel going to the Gentiles. And now he is speaking up to this council in Jerusalem saying that why would we continue to put this burden on them because they are receiving the Holy Spirit. So I can imagine that this was pretty emotional for Peter as well. So, all right, our time's about up. Anyway, thank you so much for allowing me to teach. I really appreciate it. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, we, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the work that Christ did on earth and on the cross and for the resurrection and for the Holy Spirit. And I thank you, Father, that you have done that for us when we have nothing to contribute. And you get all of the glory and all of the praise. And we pray, Father, that we can live our lives understanding that, not trying to add things to it, but be thankful for the completed work that you've done in your son, Jesus. I pray also, Lord, that we will be able to discern false teaching and gently correct the people who are doing so. And I pray that we'll do so by the power of the Holy Spirit, because that's the only way we know that people can be changed. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.